Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Susan Lotempio is an author and lecturer on disability issues in the media. She worked for the Buffalo News for 25 years, including time as a features editor, a lifestyles editor, and editor and creator of the youth section, Next. She also wrote the Diversity at Work blog for the Pointer Institute about media representation of disability and the Disability Angle for the National Center on Disability and Journalism. Uh, Susan's connection to disability, she had polio as an eight-month-old and is a wheelchair user. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Mark. It's nice to be here. So the first question we always ask, uh, can you share with us your journalism origin story and the uh, personal nature of your interest in disability, in disability issues? My interest in journalism started in high school, where um, I was asked to join the high school paper. And from that minute, I knew journalism was going to be my career. Um, I went to University of Illinois, which at that time was the most accessible campus in the country, and majored in communications. And my first job was at the Niagara Falls Gazette, just several blocks from the falls themselves, where I was assigned to work the copy desk because no one in that newsroom thought I could do anything but be pinned to a desk and write headlines. And in my five years there, I gradually proved step-by-step, story-by-story that I could uh, interview and write and make a deadline and do everything everyone else was doing. And I rose in the ranks to become the lifestyle editor at that paper. Then I took a year off and worked at a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., educating federal contractors, companies who took federal money. Um, what the laws were on hiring disabled workers and accommodating them. And then I returned to journalism by heading out to California and ended up at the Oakland Tribune, which was the highlight of my career because it was such a diversified newsroom. Robert Maynard was a publisher and editor. And um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners remember Bob. Um, He was the first black publisher in the country. And um, he put together a newsroom that was phenomenal. It's my only experience in a newsroom where I was not the only person with a disability. One of the editorial writers had uh, um, a disability and I'm sure there were many others undisclosed, but uh, visibly there were two of us and it it was very different and it was wonderful. What were the experiences that you had with your colleagues as I guess you got used to them and they got used to you? Yeah, yeah. In Oakland, it was not a big deal. At every other paper, it seemed like a big deal. I was, you know, dainty or, um, you know, at any minute I might fall apart or something. But in Oakland, because there were two of us and because there were so many other minorities, we were just expected to do the job. And for me, that was just breathtakingly wonderful. Um, I I could be myself. I didn't have to prove myself. And uh, in the years I was there, I was in several different jobs and um, I was very reluctant to leave, but needed to get back east to be near family at one point, at some point. And that's when I ended up at the Buffalo News, which was like going from uh, the 20th century back to the 18th century, basically. They weren't even on computers when I went to the news. 
<laughs> this is before uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, but still um, there was no attempt to, at accommodation. I, as a working journalist, I had to go to a different floor to use the women's room because the one on my floor was not accessible. They wouldn't change it. And the irony to all of this is when the ADA was passed, they came to me and asked me if I would help them make the place accessible, tell them what they needed to do. So it was okay, it was not okay before the law, but after the law, they wanted to make sure that the public was accommodated and now, not the workers. To, um, this is an audio podcast to, to ensure that, that people grasp this. Um, what years are we talking about here? What years did you work? Um, the Buffalo News, I was there 86 to 2013, I think. It was 25 years, but I won in 86. Okay. Um, and why? what do you like most about editing? I like editing sections, you know, like being the head of the section, the editor, as opposed to editing stories, because I like to shape things. You know, I, I like uh, the features department at the Buffalo News. We had a long way to go to, to modernize it. And I liked working on taking that section into a direction that served the readers better than um, the old fashioned way of, you know, if we'll put it in the paper and you better like it. I was, I was more like, what would our readers want? Um, what would they, what could they use? And um, that was a great challenge. And we brought that paper a long way in those years. What were some, what were some of your most memorable um, sections, uh, things that you did? Well, the, the one I remember the most was the section we started for teenagers called Next. And that was an attempt to get young people uh, to want to read the newspaper. And we did that by having them write for the section. They were paid freelancers who produced all the content for this section. It was weekly, it was a tab. Like the New York Times section now on the very front page, it said this was not for adults to read. Um, this is for teenagers to read. And um, since then, I have um, heard about a lot of my writers who are now professionals and working in the field. That's terrific. Yeah, how, it is. How, how have you seen resources available to uh, reporters and editors with disabilities? Have you seen that change over uh, time? Well, when I left the Buffalo News after 25 years, I was still the only disabled journalist there. And the paper was still not interested in covering disability in any significant way. Since then, I've heard that there are more reporters with disabilities, but they're struggling in their own way, struggling getting hired, struggling to get the beats they feel they deserve. Um, some have succeeded, some are still working awful hard. But I think in newsrooms, since the pandemic, things are going to be a bit easier since uh, journalists can be accommodated by working from home if that's what they need. Um, if they want to go into the newsroom, that's great. But some of them could really use the accommodation of working from home on whatever special equipment they may have already established. You mentioned the restroom uh, situation <laughs> that you were dealing with earlier. Are there other things that um, that you would have dealt with along the way that to someone who's, who's not disabled uh, that they might not have thought of? 
Well, Buffalo, of course, is known for its snow. And there would have been many days I could not get to work, uh, except for the fact that the company did let me park in the company garage. And while everybody made jokes about that, for me, that was enormously important, not just because uh, of the fact that my car didn't get loaded with snow, but because it was safer. You know, pushing on sidewalks in the snow is just a horrible, horrible thing. And also there was a period of time long before the pandemic and work from home was popular where my boss, who was at the time, Margaret Sullivan, who's now uh, the media customer of the Washington Post, she was my boss then, worked very hard to accommodate me. As I was recovering from some surgery, I could work from home. They uh, brought me the computers, they hooked me up to the system at work, and for several weeks or months, um, I could produce. You know, I was not just sitting at home feeling sorry for myself. I actually was functioning as an editor. And this was long before the time that that was accepted or allowed. So I always felt that we sort of um, were ahead of time. Um, it was an amazing accommodation in the, in the 90s. Margaret Sullivan is, an, is a very well-known figure in the industry. That's great that you had the opportunity to work with her. Can you elaborate on your experience? Well, she um, not only physically made sure I had what I needed to function, she also encouraged me to write about disability issues. Um, I went to a Beatles concert and a Paul McCartney concert, I'm sorry, uh, in New York and came back furious because of sightline issues. I left the concert after the third song because I couldn't see anything. Um, and Madison Square Garden was not interested in, in accommodating anybody who couldn't stand up. Um, and Margaret's the one who encouraged me to write uh, an op-ed for the Times. Um, she all, uh, also encouraged and gave me the time to go anywhere in the country to speak about disability and journalism. I taught lots of classes on it, and that was always on Buffalo News Time. And so she was ahead of the pack, understanding that it was a part of journalism we needed to develop and work on. I read something that you wrote for Pointer in 2006, and then I read some of your pieces from the last few years for NCDJ. You advise on how to cover uh, different topics, and we were talking about this before we started taping. Uh, I feel like in summary, the theme that we're going to talk about here is uh, be conscientious, be educated, be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of different things going on here, and I'll just a couple of examples. Um, understand who falls under the definition of disabled. A person with a disability is generally defined as someone who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, such as working, caring for oneself, walking, seeing, hearing, has a record of such an impairment or is regarded as having such an impairment. Mm -hmm. Another another thing with that, avoid the use of suffers from, afflicted with, or victim, uh, mm -hmm. and don't automatically gravitate to the victim hero or inspirational story formula when writing about people with disabilities. Uh, when it's done, let's focus on when it's done well. When writing about the topic of disabilities is done well, uh, what do you see? What I see is that uh, disability is not even mentioned unless it has a relevance to the story. Um, we talk all the time about how newsrooms are always reaching out for fresh sources 
people who can get different perspectives, spins to a topic, and people with disabilities are never considered. So if you're doing a story on the transit system in a certain city, uh, reaching out to the disabled population is critical because they are even they are often left at the bus stop. You know, so when it's done well, it's because they're talking to all segments of a community, including people with disabilities and senior citizens and people with minorities, that it's just folded into the fabric of the story. Um, when it's not done well, um, it's an inspiration story, which unfortunately, um, the TV networks, particularly the prominent news shows, are still doing. They're still doing stories about people with disabilities who are doing something phenomenal and shouldn't they inspire us? And usually when you think about it, it's not phenomenal for anyone else to do, you know, like kick a football or something. Um, it, it, inspiring stories are very detrimental to people with disabilities because they put us in a box that either we're so pathetic, they don't wanna write about us, or we're so inspirational that they take it to a level that is absolutely unhuman, inhuman. The other aspect of country interestness, you just kind of alluded to this, is understanding um, what to cover. And again, just going through some examples that you provided. Start of the pandemic, you noted that there are plenty of non-elderly people with disabilities living in nursing homes. Yeah. Um, you pointed out that uh, people with disabilities face barriers in trying to vote, which actually I completely did not think of when I was when I read that, I was like, of course. Um, the hazards that e-scooters pose to people in wheelchairs and people who mm -hmm. use canes. Um, what other important stories are going uncovered because people aren't thinking of, of things related to disabilities? Well, can we step back and talk a little bit about the voting story? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, at first that story was, you know, more voting booths need to be made accessible and more accessible equipment needs to be in the voting booth. But now with all the talk about um, less write-in write ballots, uh, fewer places to drop a ballot, all the different changes that are coming um, and being voted on in le state legislatures, they really threaten people with disabilities uh, to take away their right to vote because many, many people want to do mail-in ballots. It's um, it's, you know, safer for them. And if they have certain disabilities where they can't write really well, it gives them more time to fill out the ballot. There's a million reasons why those sorts of uh, changes in voting laws are putting people with disabilities at risk. And I don't think that that's really being covered. Even today, with every day you read about another sort of change in a law somewhere. The, the, so. the, thing, the thing that I brought up about the, at the start of the pandemic, plenty of non-elderly people with disabilities living in nursing homes, has there been coverage of that in the two years since you wrote it? Um, not particularly. It's really an old story, but the pandemic sort of gave me some fresh reason to bring it up. There are some people with disabilities where in their community, there's no place for them to live. They can't get the direct services that they need. Um, to dress or transfer or whatever. And so they end up in nursing homes, you know, when they would probably rather be in group homes or some other situation that would give them more, give them more independence. And now with the pandemic, that put them more at risk to getting uh, COVID. 
Explain uh, what you've done for NCDJ. Well, writing the um, disability angle column, which is really just story ideas, goes back to one of my former jobs where I um, generated lots of story ideas. Um, and I have been with NCDJ since almost the beginning before it moved to Arizona State. Um, I was on the board in its infancy. Um, so I've helped direct it to a certain point, and now I feel my contributions as being this old crotchety journalist who can try to, <laughs> try to help the younger people stay on track. Uh, one thing NC NCDJ has given me is the ability to mentor. Um, there's a Buffalo radio station, it's the NPR station, WBFO, that's established a disability news desk. Um, and I helped them work on that. And for the past year and a half, I've mentored the reporter assigned to it. And they are doing amazing coverage of the disability community uh, in Buffalo, where the community is no bigger than most cities, um, but they're finding great stories. And in this point in my career, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm so proud of what they've done. When, when you talk to them, what do you tell them? Um, I tell them first, what is the good story? You know, she comes to me with lots and lots of ideas. And what we try to do is what every journalist does, get to the nut graph. Is this a good story or isn't this a good story? Um, should this be about disability or should it be wider? You know, um, it's like teaching, teaching journalism again with a twist that um, they're making sure they get every aspect of that community covered in some way. Taking a wider uh, view of things with the NCDJ, uh, what are some things that you would like to see accomplished in the next uh, few years and over time? Yeah, um, I think Kristen, our executive director, would agree with this. I think we could be more active helping recruit people with disabilities into journalism and helping support them. Um, I mean, I know for years they've tried to come up with a registry of people, active journalists with disabilities who are working now. Um, and I don't know how far that's gotten, but I think even more importantly, we need to give them support. In other words, mentoring. You know, the woman I work with at WBFO has a disability. And so I've, we've worked a lot on accommodation. And I think a lot of young reporters, when they get their first job, they don't want to ask for accommodations because they don't want to set themselves apart. I was like that when I was an early, a new reporter. Um, so I think NCDJ could do a lot of mentoring. And I think our, our story contest is very important because it showcases how good journalism can be um, about issues of disability. Kristen Gilger actually talks about that in the interview that follows this one. Uh, so we, we have that uh, well covered. I would like to tell you an anecdote, which I find, sure. remember from days past. Um, there was a time in New York State when the governor had to resign, Elliot Spitzer, people may remember that. Sure. Um, and David Patterson, who is blind, right, blind, yep. um, became governor. And he came to the Buffalo News to meet with the editorial board. And um, we all got to ask him questions. And my question was, what are you doing about money to assist the disabled community in New York State? Because there's always talk about cutbacks and that's where the money is cut back. And he did the normal po political thing where he just talked around the question and never answered it. 
at the end of the interview, he went around the table and shook everybody's hands and met everybody. And when he got to me, he whispered in my ear something like, I really wish you wouldn't ask questions that I can't really answer. <laughs> um, he knew I got him. He, he knew that he should have had a better answer for that. And throughout my career, I didn't always ask questions related to disability, but this was too tempting. A man who had a, dis a disability that everybody would write about, you know, a blind governor, wow, but still did not see the need to be well prepared on questions that, about the community. So, um, all right. So, just to close, um, this podcast is called the Journalism Salute. We always ask people at the end, is there a journalism organization or person uh, that you would like to salute for their good work? Oh, definitely Margaret. I, Margaret is doing tremendous work at the Washington Post. She did tremendous work at the New York Times as a budsman. And I just think um, she, <laughs> to use the I word, she was always inspiring me to reach higher, higher and higher. And I, I give her a lot of credit for my career. So I hope she works for a long time um, at the Post writing that column. Yep. Uh, Susan Lovetempia, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Appreciate uh, your taking the time to speak to us. Thank you, Mark. It was very enjoyable. On the Journalism Salute, we offer interviews that are thoughtful, diverse, and smart. Kushbu Shah, the editor-in-chief of The Fuller Project. What we do differently is that we center women in our stories, whether they're sources or experts. By Ken Lemon, vice president for broadcast and the chairman of the Black Male Media Project for the National Association of Black Journalists. Promoting diversity and fairness for journalists, and, and that's been kind of a big peg of what we've done lately. We're joined by PJ Cabrera. PJ is a teacher. And we focus on what we do matters because I think a lot of student journalists need to understand that the work that they're doing in their in their newsrooms is important. Bettina Chang, the co-founder and executive editorial director of City Bureau. If we could train more people of color to be journalists, that we would put ourselves on a better path where journalism might be more equitable, might be more responsive to the needs of communities. The journalism Salute allows journalism to show the best of itself. Tune in and join the conversation. We're also joined today by Kristen Gilger. She is a professor of business journalism at Arizona State University, Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. She's also the executive director of the National Center on Disability and Journalism. She's had a long career in both education and journalism, been an associate dean, formerly the deputy managing editor for news at the Arizona Republic. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Before we dive in on, on the group here, let me get an origin story for you. What led to you being involved with them? Uh, accident, a pure and simple accident. Um, I uh, had first joined the Cronkite School about 18 years ago, and uh, we were contacted by a woman who had started this organization, uh, you know, Disability and Journalism, uh, because she felt passionately that journalists were not doing a good enough job covering disability. But she had sort of been doing this as a passion project, moving around from one part of the country to another, and she wanted to find a university home for it you know, someplace to stabilize and, and grow it. And she approached us and we said, well, that's really interesting. Um, and we agreed to take it on. Uh, and basically it consisted of a URL and a, a box of materials. 
Um, but we built it very slowly over over time. And you know, when we when we took in the center, when we decided to host it and and care for it and feed it, disability was not really a topic of conversation in journalism. And so it was this really un. Uh, tested area that um, I thought had incredible potential and needed to be addressed. So that's sort of why we I've been involved with it ever since. Did you have any personal connection to disability or was there something in your childhood or grow upbringing? We always ask this of the journalists that we have on that would have made you particularly interested in the subject matter. The answer is no. Um, uh, in terms of uh, I don't live with a disability myself. Um, I don't have any very, very close family members who live with a disability. Um, but I do think, you know, as I think about this question, I, I think that what connected me to this issue is um, I, from childhood on a, a very acute sense of unfairness of the world. <laughs> And I think I think I've always been highly focused on that's not fair, uh, and um, and I've been very uh, active in all kinds of diversity issues uh, in my career, uh, dealing um, with gender, for example. I'm a co-author of a book on gender in the newsroom, and so I think there's sort of an affinity there in terms of inclusiveness, diversity, fairness. So what do you do uh, in your day-to-day, day-to-day and long-term for the National Center on Disability and Journalism? Well, for a long time, uh, approximately 18 years, it's been me and uh, a series of graduate students. Uh, And we are the National Center on Disability and Journalism, along with, and this is important, just extraordinary advisory board. So I have a board of journalists, educators, Uh, people who live with disabilities, who are actually very active. So they do a ton of the work. You know, we do a lot of training. We are continually updating our disability language style guide, fielding questions, trying to provide assistance. And so I do rely a lot on my board. You mentioned the fielding questions aspect. I'm curious, what types of questions do journalists bring to you? Oh, geez, all kinds of questions. I guess mostly they would come in two areas. One would be how disability is represented in the media. You know, sort of what are the shortcomings? Are we getting any better? What about how the media frames stories? What about sourcing and including the voices of people with disabilities? That kind of thing. The other would be around language issues. Um, and we've, we work a lot in this area and it's, you know, it's complicated and constantly changing. Uh, and so we do get a lot of questions about what's the appropriate language to use. We also get, you know, some uh, questions about, you know, how do I talk to people with disabilities? How do I ask them about their disabilities? You know, this kind of thing. And I love getting questions like that because I think for a long time, and as you mentioned, I came from newsrooms, uh, and I think I felt this way in a newsroom, and I know a lot of other journalists uh, feel this way, is that, you know, when it comes to a disability story, you're kind of like, uh, I don't think I want to do that. Uh, I don't know enough. I'm, I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to make somebody mad. I'm going to embarrass myself. And so I think there's been a reluctance um, for journalists to you know, really engage in in disability reporting 
because of that, and one of our big goals is, you know, we don't want to be the language police. I don't want to come down on people. I really want journalists and communications professionals to feel more comfortable, like give them information so that they feel more comfortable doing this work. When a reporter is covering a subject connected to disability, I know it's easy to point out the mistakes. What about uh, when they're doing it well? What are the characteristics of what you see when they do it well? Yeah, good question. Um, we actually sponsor a contest each year that recognizes the best disability reporting. It started out recognizing the best disability reporting in the US, but there's been so much interest uh, internationally that um, in the last few years, we've started to accept entries. As long as they're in English, I'll take them, right? So we're getting entries from all over the world. And I've seen um, uh, an improvement. I, I've seen a fairly substantial improvement in uh, coverage and interest in covering uh, disability. So the, the kind of work that usually wins this contest, and there's a little bit of money involved uh, in terms of what the winner gets, not in terms of <laughs> anything else, the uh, the the winning work is usually has is sort of investigative in nature. You know, it's an it's righting wrongs, it's shining the light on an injustice, and it's deeply reported. Uh, and that and when I say deeply reported, I mean it in a couple of ways. One is just like you know data and records and fact finding, right? But the other is deeply reported in terms of including people with disabilities front and central uh, as the voices and experts in those stories. Centering them in the stories. We've talked about that with uh, just about any time we've talked about a topic uh, that has come up. I was listening and watching on YouTube a talk that you led uh, with three reporters who focus on disabilities, including Amanda Morris at the New York Times, who said a crucial part of reporting on disabilities in a non-problematic way is picking stories that are actually newsworthy, not stories that turn people with disabilities into spectacles for non-disabled audiences. Uh, two yeah. things here. One is I, I would ask you to comment on what she said. And two, she's on this New York Times fellowship that I know that you're involved in, and this is important. And I was hoping that you could introduce that to people. Yeah, I mean, I, Amanda said it beautifully. We talk a lot about this, um, about uh, some people call it inspiration porn. Uh, and what we tell journalists is ask yourself what the purpose is of your story and who the audience is for your story. If your audience is a people of largely uh, people who don't live with a disability uh, and, you're, and you're just sort of trying to make them feel better about themselves, then, okay, you're going down the wrong path. <laughs> That's when you want to stop and ask yourself, well, wait a minute, you know, why am I really doing this story? Um, and, but, you know, it's interesting because there's, there are people, including people on our board, who, if you ask them, if you could choose between those kinds of uh, uh, inspiration porn stories and no stories, what would you choose? They would take the inspiration porn stories that they think that coverage in itself is, is a huge issue that we need people, we, people need to see themselves 
and people who live with disabilities, if they don't, in stories, in media coverage, right, on television, uh, on social media, in newspapers and magazines, that they'd rather have those kinds of stories than none at all. Now, there's some disagreement there, but um, but I think, and Amanda will talk about this, is the key, the critical question is, who's your audience and what's the purpose of your story? And if you can answer that uh, in a way that feels good journalistically, right, uh, and ethically, then uh, then I think you're on the right path. You mentioned the New York Times uh, Disability uh, a Fellowship. So um, this is, we went in with the New York Times uh, to uh, apply for a grant from the Ford Foundation. And the Ford Foundation has been very supportive of uh, disability uh, issues the grant uh, funded two years of uh, uh, fellows at the New York Times for the first time to report on disability as a disability beat. And so I, and Amanda was our very first one. Uh, she's um, just about ready to wrap up her year long fellowship. And we have a new person who's just been announced who will be next year's fellow. And so the role of the NCDJ in that is to sort of mentor that fellow uh, provide sort of an outside the New York Times, um, you know, place to come for for uh, advice, uh, uh, consultation, mentoring. So that's what we do for that for that program. And you know, I've had a lot of media organizations, several, I should say, um, they're very interested in this model. And if it can spread, you know, if we can get more funding to fund more fellows at uh, news organizations around the country, I I would be thrilled. I read the piece that she did about the movie Coda and the perception of that movie in the deaf community. And uh, it was, it was, yeah. I would describe it as very comprehensive, uh, yeah. certainly. All right. So two last things here. Um, I always ask this for organizations. What can someone at home who's not in a position of power do to help the cause? Yeah, another really good question and not an easy one to answer. I, you know, it, I think we all have power. You know, we all have power in the work, in our working lives and in our personal lives, and we can exercise that power uh, in, in terms of like seeking out information, uh, engaging uh, with people who you normally wouldn't, might not engage with, um, you know, educating yourself, and then, and then talking about those things that you learn uh, with, with others. Uh, or incorporating it into your work. It might be in your workplace with other people you work with. It might be if you're, you know, in media somehow, like you, right? Sharing that uh, with with a wider audience, or maybe just even on social media. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, there's a lot more. I think awareness now uh, that there are. There, there is this huge population, you know, maybe one in four, one in five, somewhere in there, depending upon what statistics you use, uh, the U.S. population that lives with some kind of disability. And if you think about it, we're all going to be, we'll all have something by, just by virtue of aging, right? I mean, this is not, a, you know, an isolated, siloed uh, uh, issue, this is something we all need to know about. And so I, I mean, maybe that's not a great answer. It's not a change the world answer, at least not overnight, but it is a, like you can nudge things along answer uh, within your own, your own life. 
certainly learn with this podcast, you can't change the world overnight. Uh, lastly, the show's called The Journalism Salute. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? You know, there are a number of them that are doing really good work, and I'll sort of stay away from the advocacy organizations. We really see ourselves as a journalism organization. So our focus is on, are you being accurate? Are you being inclusive? Are you telling stories that haven't, you know, uh, haven't been told? Um, are you are you being thorough? And um, those are the questions that we're asking. Uh, so I would say, you know, there's um, Access Press, which is doing some good work out of Minnesota. There's um, uh, uh, NPR, I think, does some good work around disability. I think New York Times, especially with Amanda, um, has done some really good work on disability. Uh, ProPublica has done some good work. And then, you know, there are some journalism, some more advocacy organizations. Respectability, I think, has done some really interesting and important work, both in terms of media. Well, I guess in terms of media sort of writ large, you know, including the entertainment um, industry. Um, I just found out and talked to a college student. I think this was last week who has started a disability journalism organization at Berkeley. You know, I mean, I was like, wow, this is great. And one of the things that we hear a lot is that we need, we don't have in this country an organization for journalists with disabilities or who are engaged in this issue, care about this these issues. I mean, we have one for everything else. You know, we have feature writers and we have uh, uh, online media and we have, uh, um, you know, all the various ethnic and racial groups um, have journalism organizations, but there isn't one nationally yet um, that represents disability, a huge need. And we've been working with a, a few other groups to uh, try to get something off the ground. One of our board members is working on this um, under another Ford Foundation grant. That's great. Uh, we will be keeping uh, tabs on that. And uh, thank you, Kristen Gilger, for taking the time to join us. Uh, best of luck with this group. Great. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.